The purpose of this video is to provide general information and education about the care of a critically ill child. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment by a qualified healthcare professional. The information contained in this video should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Introduction to Mechanical Ventilation by Dr. Gerhard Wolf. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. My name is Dr. Gerhard Wolf. I work in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Children's Hospital Boston and I wanted to give you an introduction about mechanical ventilation. Introduction Let's start with indications for mechanical ventilation. And there's three fundamentally different reasons why somebody needs to be on a mechanical ventilator. And it sounds very simple, but I actually do think about those indications every single time I think about a patient on a ventilator. A patient might be on the ventilator because his primary problem is hypoxia. And hypoxia is often caused by acute lung injury. The patient has atelectasis, inflammation, may have an alveolar to arterial O2 gradient. And the main approach to this is actually that we ventilate the patient with adequate PEEP to recruit most of his atelectasis and improve his oxygenation. The next fundamentally different reason why a child may be on the ventilator might be hypercarbia. The patient who's hypercarbic normally has little problems with ox uh, oxygen consumption and oxygen uptake, but the problem of this patient is that he cannot exhale CO2 because he has ob obstructive airway disease. So the patients with asthma, for example, are in this category. And those patients are often ventilated in a different way. Here, it's not so much PEEP and oxygenation that the patient needs to be improved on. It's more that the patient needs an adequate expiratory time and needs sufficient time to exhale CO2. And the third category of patients actually would be just loss of airway control. So those patients presumably have healthy lungs, but they have a loss of airway control either because they had a head injury or they may be uh, intoxicated with something or may, they may have a severe infection with altered mental status. Terminology. Let's review some of the terminology that occurs when we talk about mechanical ventilation. There's the peak inspiratory pressure, or the PIP, which is the highest pressure that the patient normally sees throughout the respiratory cycle. Then there's the positive end expiratory pressure, which is the pressure that is present during expiration and prevents the lung from experiencing end expiratory collapse. The mean airway pressure is the area under the pressure waveform. And the mean airway pressure is not directly set on a ventilator, but it's influenced by a lot of other settings. For example, if you increase the peak inspiratory pressure on a ventilator, the mean airway pressure is increased as well. If you increase the PEEP on a ventilator, the mean airway pressure goes up. If you increase the inspiratory time, the mean airway pressure also increases because all of that increases the area under the pressure waveform. There's the respiratory rate, and often there's a rate we set on the ventilator, but there may also be the rate that the patient is actually breathing. So we may set the ventilator at 20, but the patient is breathing 30, so it's important to recognize that. And there's the inspiratory time. 
The inspiratory time is set mostly according to the age of the patient. And whereas most neonates may have an inspiratory time of 0.4 or 0.5 seconds, uh, children sometimes have an inspiratory time of 0.8 to 1 seconds, and older children and adults normally have 1.2 seconds or 1.4 seconds inspiratory time. SIMV means synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. And what does that mean? Synchronized means that the patient has the opportunity to trigger the ventilator within a certain time frame of a couple of hundred milliseconds. If the patient triggers the ventilator, he will actually get a triggered breath. But if a patient is, for example, too sedated or otherwise not interested in triggering the breath, the ventilator will deliver the breath anyway. SIMV exists in volume control or in pressure control. And while we talk about triggering, there's a flow trigger and a pressure trigger. Most modern ventilators now are equipped with a flow trigger, which means that the patient has to generate a negative flow at the airway opening, and that will deliver the mechanical breath, or that will trigger the breath. And some older ventilators have a pressure trigger, which means that the patient has to generate negative pressure at the airway opening. And especially for small children, that can be harder to trigger. So most of our smaller children, or most of our children's now, are uh, set up with a, with a flow trigger, so they can trigger with a negative flow. What does compliance mean? Compliance means the change in volume over the change in pressure. And that compliance is both age and weight specific. That's why it's relatively impractical to compare the compliance between two different patients. But it is quite useful to look at the compliance in each individual patient. For example, as the patient gets sicker, he may need more pressure to generate the same volume change in the lung, which means the compliance just got worse. Modes of ventilation. Pressure control and volume control, what's the difference? In pressure control, the pressure is set and the volume that the patient is receiving is actually a result of his lung compliance. In volume control, it's the other way around. A certain volume is set, for example, an inspiratory volume of 500 cc's, and the pressure that is required to get this volume in the patient's lungs is then a result of the patient's compliance. And the important difference of both is the shape of the inspiratory flow. Here's pressure versus volume control. On the right side, you see volume control, and on the left side, you see pressure control. The top panel is flow, and the bottom panel is airway pressure. Let's look at volume control first. You can see that the flow is constant. It's like the constant flow out of a faucet, the water flow out of a faucet. And the airway pressure rises over the inspiratory time. So with volume control, you have a constant flow, and the airway pressure is increasing over the inspiratory cycle. With pressure control, it's a little different. There's a lot of flow in the beginning of inspiration, and that flow decelerates to almost zero at the end of inspiration, and we call that a decelerating flow. And the result of that is that the pressure now is more homogeneously distributed over the inspiratory time. Let's look at a screen of a uh, typical ventilator here. On the bottom, you see the numbers that are actually set on this ventilator, and on the side are the numbers that are actually read off the ventilator. And you typically have three curves, which is pressure on the top, flow in the middle, and then volume in the bottom. This patient is in pressure control. You can actually see on top the relatively square wave of the pressure waveform and uh, below the flow waveform with a decelerate, decelerating flow. And note that the flow 
decelerates to zero, both in inspiration and expiration, and that's actually important to set up the ventilator in this fashion. In this ventilator, a triggered and a non-triggered breath looks different, and most ventilators have some way to delineate whether the, press, whether the breath is actually triggered by the patient or not triggered. Um, in this ventilator, it is such that the non-triggered breath is red and the triggered breath is yellow. Let's talk about pressure support. Pressure support is a mode of ventilation that is widely used now, and it means that the patient is breathing spontaneously and the inspiratory time is variable. Now, while on pressure support there is a pressure support level set, which means there is a peak pressure and a peak positive end expiratory pressure, the inspiratory time is actually determined by the patient. The ventilator measures the inspiratory flow, and once that drops to a certain number, then the inspiration is regarded to be completed. So now the patient actually has control over his respiratory rate, but also over his inspiratory time. So it's a relatively spontaneous mode of inspiration. In comparison, in SIMV, the patient can trigger, but once he triggers, the inspiratory time is set. And there's a couple of positive effects on pressure support. It means that the patient is in control of the ventilator more than during other modes of ventilation. The patient is triggering, which means that he's using his own respiratory muscles um, to help uh, breathing on the ventilator. This can lead to a recruitment of lung volume and to an overall increased patient comfort. Acute respiratory distress syndrome. Let's talk about oxygenation index and PF ratio. Both are actually important indices that uh, are useful to be calculated because they delineate if a patient is getting sicker or if a patient is getting better. The first index is the oxygenation index. It's calculated by the mean airway pressure times the FiO2 divided by the PaO2 times 100. So if the oxygenation index is rising, it means that the patient is getting worse. It means that the patient means more mean air pressure, needs more mean airway pressure or a higher FiO2 to achieve the same amount of PaO2. The next important ratio is the PF ratio. It's simply the PaO2 divided by the FiO2. Now it's the other way around here. If the PF ratio is decreasing, it means that the patient is doing worse. And the PF ratio actually has an important role in defining ARDS. The Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference, or PALIC, provided the first pediatric-specific definition of Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, or PARDS for short. In order to diagnose PARDS, a few components of the patient's condition need to be addressed. First, patients with perinatal lung disease should be excluded. Onset should be acute, occurring within seven days of a known clinical insult, and in general, the condition is characterized by respiratory failure not fully explained by cardiac failure or pulmonary edema. Second, chest imaging. New infiltrates should be observed that are consistent with acute pulmonary parenchymal disease. And last, oxygenation. As a reminder, the adult definition of ARDS, the Berlin definition, utilizes the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio in order to quantify the degree of hypoxia. In the case of pediatric ARDS, the oxygenation index, or OI for short, is computed in order to quantify this degree of hypoxia. The OI is computed by multiplying the mean airway pressure by fraction of inspired oxygen divided by the PaO2 and multiplied by 100. The higher this number, the worse degree of hypoxia. The perceived benefits of using OI as opposed to PF ratio is that it includes both of the important clinical modulators of oxygenation, mean airway pressure, and FiO2. You can see in the table below that an OI of greater than or equal to 4 satisfies the criteria for PARDS. 
If you do not have access to an arterial blood gas in order to obtain a PaO2 value, you can also calculate the oxygen saturation index, or OSI. In this case, instead of PaO2, you insert the SpO2, provided that measured value is less than or equal to 97%. In this case, an OSI value of greater than or equal to 5 satisfies the criteria for PARDS. You can see in the table below the varying degrees of PARDS severity based on OI and OSI. You can see in the table the varying degrees of PARDS severity based on both OI and OSI. Here's an important differential diagnosis in a newborn. This newborn presented with hypoxia and respiratory distress. And if you look at the chest x-ray, you actually see that the patient is intubated and uh, has bilateral infiltrates on chest x-ray. The heart looks slightly generous. The patient actually does not have a neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. The patient has TAPVR, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. So it's a cardiac condition that looks like ARDS or like respiratory distress syndrome of the neonate in the first place, but it's actually important to include, exclude that with an echo. Let's talk about ventilator-associated lung injury because whenever we use a ventilator, we recognize it's life-saving for the patient, but also the ventilator can actually induce ventilator-associated lung injury and make the patient worse. And ventilator-associated lung injury can happen in three ways. We have volutrauma, which means that there is an overdistension of normal lung units or normal alveoli. There is atelectrauma, which means that there is the repetitive opening and closing of atelectasis, which is potentially harmful to the lung as well. And then there is the biotrauma, which means that there is a release of inflammatory cytokines that now fuel the lung injury we're dealing with. And here's an image uh, out of John West's uh, chapter. This is an uh, animal lung under an electron microscope and you actually can see those fine tears in the alveoli. And again through those tears there is a leakage of fluid, protein containing fluid that leaks now into the alveolus and is fueling the inflammatory cascade. Lung protective strategies. Now what are the main strategies of ventilating a patient with ARDS? We try to reduce the tidal volumes and use tidal volumes of no more than 6 per kilo. We know from a large multicenter study that a tidal volume of 6 per kilo is far beneficial compared to a tidal volume of 12 per kilo, so we try to use a low tidal volume strategy. We try to use the amount of PEEP that will give us the adequate lung recruitment, which is often a PEEP that it allows us to reduce the FiO2 to less than 60% or to 60%. We also involve a strategy called permissive hypercapnia and permissive hypoxia, which means that as long as the patient is not acidotic, say his pH is above 7.25, we can let his CO2 rise and reduce ventilator settings. That is in and itself lung protective. And uh, a patient with ARDS doesn't need to saturate 100%. We often use a goal PaO2 of 55 to 65, which corresponds to a SAT of 88 or 92% which is called permissive hypoxia. Extubation readiness. When is the patient ready for extubation? So once the patient got better, we have to assure ourselves that the patient is actually awake. So sedation plays an important role in extubation readiness test. We would stop his feet to make sure he's, uh, he has an empty stomach. His FiO2 should be weaned to 50% or less, and his PEEP should be weaned to 5 and then here at Children's, we use a uh, pressure support that is um, actually linked to the size of the endotracheal tube um, because a smaller endotracheal tube will need a larger pressure to overcome the resistance of that tube. 
So if a small patient has a 3 or 3.5 tube, we actually use a pressure support of 10, so that patient would be on 10 over 5. If he has a 4.0 or 5, 4.5 endotracheal tube, we would use a pressure support of 8. And if the patient has a 5.0 endotracheal tube or larger, we use a pressure support of 6. And so if the patient tolerates that and is awake and is not getting tachypnic under those settings and has a normal blood gas, then the patient is considered to be ready for extubation. Thank you very much. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. What did or didn't you like about this video? Was the content too simple, just right, or too difficult? Was the length too short, just right, or too long? Any additional comments? You can either click the Start a New Discussion button and type in feedback or send us an email at openpediatrics at childrens.harvard.edu. Note, feedback is not required to complete this activity in the Guided Learning Pathway.